Okay. Hi, superstars. We are back for Awesome Overflow Part 2. This is still the June overflow, even though now it's July. Unprecedented two-part Awesome Overflow. Joined once again by my sister and sort of awesome regular, Emily Harris. Hi, Emily. Hi, Meg. We had so many awesomes ask us for advice about specific things that we thought, gosh, let's just do a two-parter here. We can do it. We're sisters. We give each other advice all the time Mm -hmm. and unsolicited. So let's just give some advice to the awesomes here. Yeah. Okay. So today in this part two, again, unprecedented for unprecedented times, we have questions. Actually, some of these are a little bit more serious. We're going to talk about questions of like when to have kids, if you should have kids, On the other end of the family life spectrum, how do we deal with aging parents? Talk about some relationship dynamics, some self-confidence stuff. So we kind of save the more introspective. Some of these are a little bit more, oh gosh, this is real life questions Mm -hmm. for this part two of the awesome overflow. So the first question is from somebody who actually had a question in part one, Tiki Knacker on Instagram. And the first, she asked a two-parter, two questions here. Do you have any advice on being more comfortable in your own skin? And then what advice do you have for pivoting or starting something new? I actually, Emily, I was thinking about these questions that she asked, and I think they kind of go together. And I think a huge, huge key component that would be part of the advice I would give anybody asking this is to start with self-compassion. I have learned so much about self-compassion over the years, how important it is to treat ourselves with gentleness, with love, with tenderness, to speak to ourselves the way that we would speak to either our best friend or to speak to like a younger version of ourselves. There's something about that, especially if you think about how you would speak to a kid. I mean, you think about you teach middle school those kids need all the compassion they could get. Yeah. I know they sometimes do. they drive you crazy, but at the same time, I know that as you look at some of their life situations and some of the things that they're going through, that you can't help but to just be like, oh my goodness, just have grace for yourself, love yourself. And we give that advice to other people so easily. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've thought that as you've looked at some of your middle school kids. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And then when it comes to yourself, it's really hard. Yes. To give yourself that same grace and compassion. Exactly. Exactly. So when it comes to advice for how to become more comfortable in your own skin, I think that that to start from a place of self-compassion, would you look at your best friend or would you look at a younger version of yourself and be like so super critical and just be like, oh my gosh, look how you look in those jeans or gosh, your skin looks terrible. No, we don't do that to the people that we love because when we look at them, we're looking through this filter of love. Yeah. And so as we begin to really focus on compassion for ourselves, I think that it's a natural outgrowth that you do become more comfortable in your own skin. I don't think that you change your outward appearance or you can't become how you want to look or whatever is causing you to be uncomfortable in your own skin. You can't have the personality that you want to have, whatever it may be, and then have compassion for yourself. I think that the comfort follows the compassion. And so as you are more compassionate to yourself, as you're more loving and gentle and joyful with yourself, 
that just naturally comes to the surface that, oh my gosh, I actually am I'm pretty comfortable with who I am because you've been building those new grooves in your brain, those brand new grooves. It's like they haven't been corrupted by years of negative self-talk. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. And so I think that that can kind of dovetail with this idea of pivoting and starting something new. It's the same thing. Like you just said, when you're thinking about your middle school students, like give yourself grace. Sometimes when you do make a big pivot, you start something new. Gosh, that to me, at least in my experience, that's when all kinds of negative self-talk are going to come to the surface. Like, who do you think you are? Why did you think you could do this? You are obviously going to fail at this. Like any kind of old negative Nancy talk. Yeah. It's just going to come to the surface naturally because our egos are going to be really threatened and like, oh, no, you're trying something new. You're going outside of our comfort zone. This is danger, danger. And it's going to try to shut that down. Yeah. And we've got to just be like, ego, it's okay. It's okay. We're doing fine. Nothing bad's going to happen here. Yeah. I know just to speak on my own experience, whenever I try something new, And I don't get it the first time. I get so mad at myself. I have always been like this. Mm -hmm. Even the simplest things like learning how to use an instant pot. Uh I'm scared of them because I'm afraid they're going to blow up or something. I'm going to burn myself on the steam or something. So we don't have one. (laughs) Right. And so Matt was showing me how to use it. And he was just like, okay, you do this and you do this and you do this. And I was like, I don't understand. And he's like, well, this is the first time I'm showing you how to use it. So just chill out and, you know, you'll get the hang of it. But yeah, and that can go with something as simple as trying a new hobby or changing a career path or anything big or small. Absolutely. It's so true. It's so true. Give yourself grace. One of my favorite things that I like to say is allow yourself to be a beginner. Whether you're pivoting into something new or you're starting something brand new, Allow yourself to be a beginner. And again, we wouldn't go out and look at the five-year-old kid who's learning to ride a bike and be like, oh my gosh, you fell down. You're an idiot. Why did you do that? We would never do that. Unless you're a monster, unless you're a serial killer, then you're probably not a superstar. But just allowing yourself to be a beginner and realizing the falling down, the skin knees, the public humiliation of falling down on the sidewalk, that's going to happen. That's part of the process. And I think it's one thing to know that cognitively, but in the moment, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where you really have to overcome that negative self-talk and just be like, I am okay with being a beginner. I am learning right now. I'm in the learning phase. Just like whatever your mantra needs to be Mm -hmm. and just really focus on that. Not to the point, we're not talking about having some kind of self-imposed toxic positivity here, but just the reality is like hardly anybody is an expert at something when they first try it right? or when they first make that move. And that's okay. You'll get to where you want to be eventually. But again, this word keeps coming up, that disequilibrium of starting it new. It's a little disorienting and that's okay. That actually means that you're doing it right. If you yeah. feel a little off kilter because you're learning something brand new. So again, it kind of all ties back into that self-compassion thing, I think. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Here's a good one. Be interested to hear what you have to say about this. I have some thoughts. Carlia86 on Instagram asked, how do I convince my husband to pick up after himself without always feeling like a nag? What thoughts do you have on this? Goodness. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you know, it's kind of tricky because I think when you're having, I think when you have something that bothers you in a relationship, even if it's something small that is really important to you, I think the time to not talk about it is when you're seeing it happen, like there's socks on the floor, yes. there's like laundry thrown yes. about the bathroom. I think that when you address it right then, I think is really probably one of the worst times because you're kind of coming at it from yeah, you're in the heat of the moment. Place. Yeah, exactly. you're in the heat of the moment. You're angry, yes. and it's probably just not going to go well. Yes. So I think rather than doing it that way, I think having an intentional conversation about some things that bother yes. you will probably be more effective. I would totally agree with that. I think that there's a couple of approaches to take here. I think the first one is a direct approach that you were just saying. Have yeah. a conversation not right when you're agitated because then you're going to yeah. have a very angry energy around it. Your partner immediately on the defensive. Yeah. And I noticed in Carly's question that she said, how do I convince my husband? I think that if we can make a mindset shift to instead of convincing the other person of something, if you could shift your mindset to like, how could we collaborate in this? Yeah. Kyle and I, and this goes back to his coaching days, we often speak in terms of like team teats. We're on the same team here. That's like a yeah. really strong part of our family culture yeah. is we're all on team teats. And so let's just say socks on the floor. That's a low stakes thing, but it's an adjutant, especially if you know, you're trying to keep things tidy. If you're trying to teach your kids, like your dirty clothes all go in the dirty clothes basket, but then dad isn't doing it or whoever, your partner isn't yeah. doing it but it's still pretty low stakes, right? It's just socks. Let's use yeah. that as an example. So to take a collaborative approach, you could sit down and have a conversation and be like, okay, we need to have a team meeting. I know this doesn't seem like a big deal, but it really is agitating to me. It's making me feel like we're not on the same team when we've, we're trying to do this. Everybody puts their dirty clothes in the dirty clothes basket. And then I see your socks on the floor. I feel like you don't respect me as part of the team. Like you can put whatever verbiage around it you want. Yeah. But you want to come at it from, we're all in this together. I don't feel like I can fully do my part of being this team, of being a leader on this team when I'm feeling agitated about something like socks. So can you meet me in this? Like, can you help support me in being the leader of this family that I want to be by putting your socks in the dirty clothes? And so I yeah. think the first step definitely is to have that direct conversation your partner just may be oblivious to the fact that, right. oh, this is causing her daily agitation when she sees my socks on the floor. Yeah. I think the second one is the second approach would be to take it more than to physically, especially if it's just picking up belongings in general, mm -hmm. to making it their problem. It doesn't have to be your problem all the time. Right. And what I mean by that is you have one, I don't know, a box, a crate, something where if you see their stuff out, you or the kids take that to that person's box. You don't put it away. If they can't find it, you can be like, check the box. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's a big part is we do tend to some of us who are used to doing more of the mental labor, emotional labor in a family dynamic. The thing like socks on the floor make us feel like I have so much to keep up with and you want me to keep up with your socks too? Right. Just figure out a solution where it's not on your plate anymore. Yeah. And it becomes their issue to deal with. What were you going to say? Yeah. Or just leave the socks there. And then when they don't have any clean socks, be like, well. Yeah. That's what yeah. I was going to say. Third thing yeah. being the total natural consequence. This is yeah. something I do with the kids. 
especially when it comes to dirty clothes, because the girls, our teen girls, have a tendency yeah. to leave their dirty clothes all over the floor. You don't know what's clean and what's dirty. <laughs> Gosh, I sound like, just like our mother. Yes. <laughs> this is my karmic payback for years of leaving clothes all over our room. Because we did the same thing. We did the same thing. We have a pretty loosey-goosey policy with our daughters. There's uh -huh. not daily or weekly cleanup. When Kyle was growing up, he had to clean his room. His room had to be like company ready every day before he left for school. And he did not oh, like wow. that. Yeah. And so he tends to go to the other end of the extreme because their room is right at the top of the stairs. And I'm like, just keep the door to your room closed. I don't want to see yeah. that when I come up the stairs. But if it gets nasty in there, then right. we have to have a come to Jesus, get in there and clean your room. Anyway, when it comes to the topic of dirty clothes, I just don't remind them anymore. They're 13 right. and 16. If a load of clothes is going into the laundry and they haven't put their dirty clothes in there, too bad. Mm -hmm. You missed yeah. it. It should have been in the dirty clothes. Right. So the same with your partner could be, like you just said, if you can tolerate the sock clutter, again, yeah. using socks as a specific example, if you can tolerate it, then just eventually they're not going to have clean socks in their drawer anymore if they right. haven't put them in the dirty clothes. Yeah. Where that becomes a problem is if it, <laughs> then you have to do the self-work of letting go of right. your big feelings about sock clutter. Yeah. So that might work for some people, might not, depending on your personality, depending on some bigger expectations in the family dynamic. Yeah. But I think being direct first is always good. And then do whatever you can to separate yourself from that. Because again, Carly's question is just like picking up after himself. So we don't know if we're talking about work papers or I don't know, like just stuff, you know, humans just yeah. leave their stuff around. Cups on the nightstand. I mean, Cups it on can the be nightstand. anything. Yes. Yeah. I think that instead of trying to convince somebody, like really trying to collaborate with them and helping them to see how this is the good for the whole family, for the marriage or the partnership. It's good for the dynamic if they can meet you in this. And then also be open to what they have to say. Maybe there's a right. thing you can turn it around and be like, how can I better support you in what you need to do to be the best person you can be for our team or whatever? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's my advice on that. Okay. Here's a pretty serious question from Carrie Annie Lease on Instagram, she asked how to decide when or if to have kids. That's a pretty big one. That's a huge one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think if you ask 10 people for advice, you'd get 10 different answers on this, yes, right? Yes, for real. Oh my gosh. I would say, and I think this is very common response when somebody is wondering like, when is the right time? I would say there's not usually an ideal time, you yeah. know, to have kids. Yeah. There may be times that are more reasonable than others. We were married for six and a half years before Daisy was born because during that time, Kyle was doing his grad assistant coaching time, which meant that he was at the football offices all the time. And as it turns out, just football coaching life in general wasn't that great for having a family, but we thought we could manage it better when he finished up his grad assistant work. Didn't work out that way, but whatever. Yeah. You know, so we waited for, a good chunk of time before we mm -hmm. started. But then sometimes things happen and it happens in the midst of a not ideal season. So I think the bigger question there is the if part. Gosh, I think that is so specific to the two people in that couple to talk through. And I think that if this is a long-term partnership or marriage situation, I think that has to be really fully on the table from the start. 
Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Because that's a life changer. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. And also the decision to have kids or not have kids really changes the trajectory of your life. Mm -hmm. Like Matt and I are in a situation where I'm going to be able to retire right when I'm eligible. Uh If we had kids, I probably wouldn't. Right. Want to retire or be able to retire. So, I mean, it's really situational and yeah. there's probably also a lot of intuition that comes with it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely. Yeah. So I do think it is a huge conversation to have from the beginning, the if part. The when part is, it's a little bit more malleable. It's a little bit more negotiable. But I do think that just keeping those communication lines open, and I know we kind of intimated this in part one of the advice we were giving, but honestly, this might be a good question to take to a counselor or a therapist. Yeah. Even if it's not something that you do over the long term, maybe just checking in with an unbiased third party who can listen to both of you and give you the tools to have the conversation in a really healthy way. Not that your therapist or your counselor is going to decide for you. Right. They have the tools to kind of guide you to whatever your answer is. Exactly. Exactly. I will say one more piece of advice for that is if you feel like maybe you want to have kids, but just maybe not right now, maybe later, I would say go ahead and just get some preliminary medical stuff out of the way. Mm, One thing that I wished I had done was sought out some fertility consultations maybe earlier than I did. So about two years ago, I found out, and I had no idea, I found out that I do not have a left fallopian tube. Like Mm -hmm. I never Just never developed. Just never developed. And I found that out through a fertility specialist. And, you know, I had and still have the option to do in vitro, but I'm just, I'm choosing not to do that just because of my age and right. some other aspects. But I think that if I would have known earlier right. that that was the case, that it might have a different outcome. So I'm just saying that something that you are leaning towards having kids get checked out, see where your egg count is, all that stuff. I think that's important. I think that is such a good point to make because I know Definitely, we have superstars for whom the fertility question has really influenced this answer for them. Yeah. Like maybe they wanted to at a certain time and then ran into challenges. And so yeah. bearing that in mind that it may not be as simple as like, okay, let's start a family now and right. then you have a family, that can definitely play a role. I think that's such good advice. If you do think, you know what, let's wait seven years down the road, mm-hmm. maybe having some checkups, some testing done yeah. for both of you. To yeah, be like, sure. okay, so this is a reasonable thing that we could do is wait this long. So Yeah. And yeah. we're obviously not physicians, so. Right. <laughs> just please, our, please, that's please. just my own experience. Yes. Yeah. Please do talk to a trusted physician about that for sure. Okay, Emily. Oh, this next one. It's a double okay. hitter. This All hits right. us where we are living right now. This is on the other yes. end of family life dynamics. Two people asked about this. M. Kate. D3, and then Dayjen9, both had questions about aging parents. One was how to handle aging parents logistically and emotionally. And second question was how to help an aging parent who insists on staying in a dangerous home that's literally falling apart. For example, when it rains, the ceiling falls in. So we're talking about a couple of different things here, the logistics of it, the emotions of it. As we were 
going through these questions before we started recording, you and I were like, well, somebody tell us, please. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah. Somebody. Yes. This question has come up so often recently in the Hangout group. I think that just like it's in the atmosphere. A lot of us who are moving into this stage of life of firmly, firmly middle age have parents who, gosh, we're unprepared for how do we navigate this with our parents? Yeah. On the emotional end, it is very difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really hard to see your parents' health failing physically. It's hard to see their mental faculties begin to fade. Obviously, for some of our parents, this happens almost overnight, but then for others, it's a long, drawn-out process. Mm -hmm. So I think that number one, navigating that within yourself as you go is really important because having aging parents is not just like, oh, gosh, that was a tough three-month stretch, you know, like now that Mm -hmm. part's over. No, this is something that goes on for most of us. Again, obviously, health conditions being what they are, it may not be that long. But if you just think about the standard idea of our parents aging, it's going to be something that stretches out over time. And so whatever that might look like for you, whether it's a support group, whether it's talking to a counselor about your feelings about your parents aging, whether it's reading books, listening to podcasts, finding support for yourself is really, really important on the emotional level. And I don't have any magic words or this is what's really helping me because it's an ongoing process where it's hard all the time. Our parents moved to Oklahoma City in 2020. So now they live 20 minutes from us closer than they've ever lived Mm -hmm. in our whole entire marriage. And so we see them so much more. And so especially when they first moved back here, we have the added complication of our mom has advanced multiple sclerosis. And so seeing her health decline even more drastically than her peers at this point in her life. It's really hard. And like, it just keeps being hard. Yeah. I do think that doing some mindset work around the fact that this is a natural part of life. And though it is difficult, it's not abnormal. It's not uncommon. This is a part of what we will experience someday. And I think that's a big subconscious part about what bothers us, right? Is seeing our own parents' age and their deterioration subconsciously or consciously reminds us of our own mortality. Right. Well, and the fact that they used to take care of us and now we're taking care of them. That's hard. That's a difficult role reversal for sure. Now, the logistics and what to do about parents who absolutely will not move into a better situation, either they can't financially or they just flat out don't want to, That's super concerning, especially for somebody whose parents are in an actual unsafe environment. I do think that looking for what local resources are available to you, whether it's a council on aging, some other kind of community-based resource, could be a good place to start. Even if they don't have the solution themselves, they could maybe at least point you in the direction of local resources that could help you know what to do in that situation. Definitely, this is a big part of it. Like we were just talking about the role reversal for some aging parents, it's really hard for them to come to grips with the fact that they are losing their independence. And local resources might be able to, sometimes if they can hear it from somebody besides their child, their adult child, hear it from an outside source, they might be more open to Mm -hmm. the fact that some changes need to happen. The other part of the logistics is frankly, the financial part. 
caring for aging parents, whether it's working with their retirement income, pension, whatever it might be, is extremely exhausting. And for almost all of us, almost all of us are going into this basically blind. Like, what do we even do? Where do you start? So again, reaching out to see what local resources can help you get started can be really good. It might be through your church. Again, it could be community-based. And then I think we need to start, and I do think as our generation kind of gets older and has to deal with this more, having better conversations with our friends, like, okay, this is what I'm finding out. You know, we have a lot of those conversations as our kids are little or as we're starting our careers. Everything feels very collaborative, but this Mm -hmm. is an area that we're not used to. So beginning the conversations with our friend groups and starting to talk about like, here's what I'm finding out. And this isn't going to be a solution right now, but on down the road, this might be what we have to do. Just like, yeah, bring it out into the open. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any brilliant wisdom to add to that? No, I wish we had more resources (laughs) because we're going through it. You more so than I am because you live so close to them, to our parents. So basically we're in the thick of it and yes, someone help us. Yes. (laughs) Right. Okay. Let's switch gears all together and talk about something very related to our generation that doesn't have to do with our kids, our parents, or anything. This is Mm -hmm. from Instagram, awesome, Christy0315. And she says, how can I get over feeling so awkward about posting selfies? And I'm guessing she means on social media. Yes. What do you think, Emily? First of all, do you feel awkward about it or do you embrace the selfie? I feel awkward about it all the time. Okay. Because whenever I look at myself, I see that my eyebrows are crooked and uneven or my face needs a little more powder. But also, I will say that doesn't keep me from posting selfies. Yes. So I don't know. I mean, I think you just can't be like, okay, well, this is me. You know, I don't know. I know what you're saying because I have said before, When I post a selfie or even just take one and look at it on my phone, all I can see are my forehead wrinkles or, you know, whatever. Like our eyes go directly to our insecurities, right? Yes. Yes. But when you post a selfie, I'm like, oh, my beautiful sister, look how big she's smiling. Look what she's doing. Her hair looks amazing. Her teeth are perfect. I don't even see any imperfections. I'm just like so happy to see your face. Yeah. And so I'm going to say again, I think coming back to the compassion piece is so Mm -hmm. important, having compassion Mm -hmm. for ourselves. And here's the hardest thing for me about selfies. When I post a selfie, I have to remember, like, this is who people see every day anyway. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. This is what they see. Like whether or not I like or embrace or feel great or not great about my forehead wrinkles, it doesn't matter. They're there. And anybody who sees me in real life is going to see my forehead. And whether or not they choose to focus on what my forehead looks like, that's on them. But this is my actual face that sees the world every day. Our friend, Laura Tremaine, did a whole entire episode about selfie shame on 10 Things to Tell You back in May. On May 11th, she had an episode. It's a whole conversation about it, about the idea that this is difficult. Sometimes we feel awkward. We feel cringy. She did that social media challenge back in May. And the first part of it was posting a selfie. I loved that day because I saw for the first time in some cases, the first time, the actual faces of people that I have been following on Instagram for years. They're obviously yeah. virtual friends. I don't know them yes. in real life. 
But for the first time, I could finally put a face with a name and it was delightful. And so I think that having compassion for yourself, reminding yourself, this is the face I put out into the world every day anyway, Mm -hmm. can be really big. And then thinking about, I don't know, like I never, and I guess sometimes if you are a person who maybe you don't like to see when people post selfies and so you feel uncomfortable, well, that's a reasonable thing. I do think it's worth exploring that with yourself. Like what makes me uncomfortable when other people post selfies? With no judgment, no judgment for whatever answer comes to the surface, but just kind of be, what is it about that that makes me feel uncomfortable? And then that might kind of help you go down the path a little bit more about like why you yourself don't want to post selfies. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, I would definitely put a link in the show notes so that you guys can go listen to that if you haven't already from 10 Things to Tell You. Okay. Okay. Here's one that's a little bit, a little bit more serious, but something I think a lot of us can relate to. Awesome Instagram or an awesome of Instagram. (laughs) Alex H asked, the pandemic helped me to see a friendship that is draining me. How do I gracefully break up? So we talk about friendship stuff often on Sorta Awesome. It is a big part of a woman's life, our friendships, right? Yes. I think a lot of us can relate to being on the broken up with side of friendship. I think a lot of us have gone through that and that can be heartbreaking. And one thing that I have heard, I know from my own experience and I've heard from other awesomes as they've been talking about this friend ghosted me or this friend doesn't seem to want to hang out with me anymore is they're left with wondering why, like, what did Mm -hmm. I do? What happened? What changed? Mm -hmm. So my advice, if you have come to the realization, like, I don't think this friendship is healthy for me anymore. If you're the one that has to make that decision. Now, this would be incredibly difficult, especially for someone like me in Enneagram 9. (laughs) We hate anything that feels like a confrontation and we really don't like direct communication. But to practice kindness to everybody, I do think that being direct in the beginning of this is really important. So for example, if there's a specific habit they have, if there's a conversation that they just will not drop, I think that giving them the chance from the beginning to be like, hey, this is kind of bothering me. This is causing me stress. Mm -hmm. When let's just say there's a conversation that they just will not drop. Every time you talk, they want to bring it up and it's just emotionally draining the life out of you. I think it's fair to everybody to say from the beginning, like, I love you. You are so dear to me, but I cannot have this conversation anymore and just kind of draw a boundary line for yourself. They may be hurt. They may be defensive. They may have their own feelings about it. And that's okay. Those are their feelings. But you're giving that friendship one more chance to kind of develop forward. They may not like it in the beginning, but they may do some self-work and be like, oh, well, okay, I guess I just, I'm not going to talk to her about that anymore. I'll talk to this other friend about it. Yeah. That's kind of the initial advice I thought about was creating boundaries Yeah, with that specific situation because yes. it seems like most relationships that are draining, they're draining for one particular reason. Like maybe they only want to talk about themselves or maybe they only want to complain about their husbands or right. whatever it is. I exactly. think that being direct and then drawing that boundary and that boundary can look different. Maybe they bring it up again and you don't respond. Right. It can just mean a lot of different things. Yes. I think just having the conversation will be so uncomfortable. I am not in any way saying this would be easy, but I do think if you do foresee breaking up with a friend, if you foresee that happening, I think that you will be able to walk away knowing that you showed up in as much of an awesome way as you can 
I think starting by being direct and just making them aware because again, and I'm only saying this because I've heard so many people and I myself have been on the other side being like, why did I do something? Like, I don't understand why they just cut me out of their life. So being direct from the beginning, then if it is a situation that just continues on and you just recognize like they don't have the capacity to change, they're not willing to change, whatever, it's this thing is continuing to go on. I'm still feeling so drained by this dynamic. I kind of think, Emily, that you're going to think I'm crazy, but I think you can do a little pro-con-pro situation, yeah, like a sandwich, pro-con-pro sandwich to break up, to really be like, okay, it's time for each of us to move on. And so- I would structure it like this. I would start with your friendship has meant so much to me through the years. You were so there for me when this thing happened. We go back to college, you know, like fill in the blank of how deeply loved and how much that friendship has meant in a different part of your life, a different season of your life. Then go into the fact like over the past few months, I've noticed myself just getting so much more stressed out by the fact that this is a conversation that we just keep having. And it's actually this thing, whatever it is, the thing that's bothering you has started to outweigh the good parts of our friendship. And I don't think it's actually a good or healthy dynamic for either of us. And so I think it's time for us to just, you know, use whatever verbiage you like. I would probably say something like, it's time for us to release each other so that we can move on and find friendships that are bringing health and vitality and good source of energy into our lives. And I don't think I'm meeting that need for you anymore. And this dynamic between us is really becoming damaging to me. So I think it's time for us. Each of us have so much to give to a friendship. I just think it's time for us to each go our different ways and start building new friendships or something like that. So yeah, honor the history of the friendship, that you're direct about what's happening and you try to end it as much as you can in a way of, it's time for us to go our separate ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It would be so hard, but I think that you could walk away from that with a sense of integrity. Mm -hmm. And at least they know, like they won't be left wondering, whatever happened to her? Why am I not in her life anymore? It may hurt, but at least there'll be an understanding of what happened. At least they'll know. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Next question is from Awesome of Instagram, NC Jill, who said, what do you do about in-laws who don't like you after 29 years. <laughs> I mean, like my initial decades. my initial reaction, this is not going to be very nice, but my initial reaction is stop caring. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, to some extent, I think that's right. Especially after yeah. three decades, they three don't decades. like you. Like they're not yes. going to come around. No, not coming and you around. should not change yourself. Uh-uh. uh-uh. No. After 29 so- years. You know, it's an often repeated piece of advice that you cannot control the actions of others, but you can control your responses. And so I do think yeah. that. But if it's your in-laws who do not like you, then that is where it becomes a marriage issue. And so right. to me, my advice would be to make sure that you and your partner or your spouse are on the same page to say like, okay, obviously your parents don't like me and that's never going to change. And that's okay. That's They're entitled to their feelings. How does this affect us? Does that mean that you take the kids and go do visits with them alone? If Mm -hmm. we go together, do we do only short visits? You have to navigate, and I'm guessing after 29 years that NC Jill and her spouse have figured this out, but that is where it becomes logistically, what do we do about this? They're not going to change. How do we change our responses to them in light of their feelings about me? Right. You think that makes sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Okay. I mean, that's hard. And I just want to validate yeah. and affirm that that would be so hard. But I think after 30 years too, yeah. I would just have to yeah. be laughing about it. Like, okay. <laughs> Seriously. All right. Well, obviously I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> You're not right. going anywhere. So like, how do we make this work? And again, it's not a negotiation with them. It's right. between you and your spouse to figure that out. Yes. Would be my advice. Okay. Last question. Something that we love to talk about. You were just in Oklahoma City recently. One of the first things we talked about was this very topic. Uh-huh. Jackie R. on Instagram says, you two always seem to have good podcast recs. Any advice on where or how to find good podcasts? Literally, when we sat down together to talk, <laughs> we were just like, okay, what have you listened to? What did yeah. you think? I mean, honestly, we get them from each other a lot. Like, I'll tell you what I'm listening to. You'll tell me what you're listening to. Another good place to find podcast recs is Reddit. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Other podcasts, like say the Obsessed Network, when they come out with a new podcast, they'll advertise it on all of their channels, all their shows. To this day, I believe in my heart of hearts, the best way for podcasts to grow is just for people to recommend them to their friends. Yeah. Now, you and I do both love a true crime podcast. Yes. So I know you and I both read the true crime podcasts subreddit because yes. they have a recommendation thread in there. There's also just a podcasts subreddit that has a weekly recommendation. Like, what are you listening to? That can be a good one. If you, let's just say, broadly speaking, an influencer that you like has a newsletter, mm-hmm. maybe subscribe to their newsletter or watch their Instagram stories or something because they may drop or even they're asking questions like, ask me anything or whatever. Yeah. Be like, what podcast do you like? Just ask and seek out recommendations from people that you think would have similar taste. I mean, we often do podcast recommendation threads in the Hangout group. People are always asking still, what are you listening to that you love lately? So those are some of the places I get mine for sure. But definitely we do tell each other a lot. You need to go listen to this. Have you listened to this? What did you think about this? Right. Okay. Well, that wraps up Awesome Overflow for June, even though now it's July part two. As always, you guys, thanks so much for your support. Really and truly, you keep the lights on. It's sort of awesome, but also it is just such a important part of our ability really to continue to grow, to keep the message of awesome out in the world. It means so much to us. You're not just financial support, but your actual presence yes. for sort of awesome it means so much. So thank you so much. Emily, thank you so much for doing a double hitter of Awesome Overflow this month. This was so fun. This has been fun. I loved all the questions. They were great questions. So yeah. Me too. Me too. Okay. Well, you guys, thanks for listening. We'll see y'all next time. Bye-bye.